Good morning, friends. Welcome. Children are welcome to go with Mother Wendy and little ones with Miss Cheryl. Sorry, with Kirsten. Wonderful. Children go with Kirsten. Delightful. All right. Let's pray, friends. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for uh, who you are and all you've done. And would you, Lord, just simply meet us this morning and give us yourself. Amen. So, friends, if you think way back to February, go all the way back to February, 40 days before Easter, the day, Easter being the day of Jesus' resurrection, 40 days before that, we got together on Ash Wednesday, and we had one of the rather more sober and somber services of the Christian year. We, we didn't celebrate, we faced our mortality. We faced the reality of the fact that we all will die. So swing on the hinge of the cross from 40 days before around to Thursday of this past week being 40 days after and we celebrate life and we take hope and we celebrate that we live and that we will live and that all things will be well that the glory of God will cover the new earth as the waters cover the sea. We noted back on Ash Wednesday, there's just something about 40s. God just seems to like to work in 40s. He works transitions in 40s. He does these in 40-day things. He does it sometimes in 40-year things. There's the flood and all that rain for 40 days. There's Moses, 40 years living in Egypt, before he then went and spent 40 years living out in the wilderness, being shaped to trust God and to believe that God held his story. Before the big call came to him, during the Exodus, there's Moses, 40 days on Mount Horeb, and he came down radiating glory. He had been changed. There's something about 40s that God does to change people and to change the world. There's Noah warning the Ninevites, what am I saying, Jonah for 40 days, There's Elijah fasting for 40 days. And of course, there's Jesus fasting for 40 days. And we in the church, we make a lot of Jesus fasting for 40 days, and we should. That's right. That's good. We ought to, though, maybe make more of Jesus walking for 40 days with his disciples and followers, showing them his new and living self, eating with them, celebrating Eucharist or proto-Eucharist, if you like, with them, retooling their minds to grasp that there is hope, helping them to grasp what it meant that he lives. And then he had yet another surprise for them. Forty days after his resurrection, he was raised up into heaven. And Jesus being raised up into heaven, if you will, is that last crucial, important, necessary piece of that whole redemptive act of God. In Jesus being raised up into heaven and seated on the throne, new humanity is replaced into the life of God at the very core of all that is. And that is the great hope we have of new embodied new life, new heaven, new earth that lasts forever where all things are made right 
and we are reunited together in God. The way may not be short. The way may be scary. The way may be difficult. It may have all kinds of curveballs and surprises and ripples, but still, we hold on. We hold on as the twinkle in the eye people. We hold on as the quiet, confidence people. We hold on as the never walk alone people. We hold on as the larger story people. We hold on as the people who have a reason to have strength to love. So this morning, friends, a simple five words of encouragement from Paul in the early chapter of his letter to the church in Ephesus where he celebrates that Jesus has been resurrected, given new life, and lifted up into heaven to sit on the throne. The first one is Paul says, I've noticed your faith, you all in Ephesus. He says, I give thanks for that. I continue to, I love it in the, in the Greek, it's literally I continue to do or to make prayers. Prayer is work, isn't it? Anybody else with me on this? Paul in one place says, the work of prayer. Why is prayer work? It takes hope. It requires attention. It's work. And Paul says, I remember you and I give thanks as I make my prayers, as I give them form and shape and I invest myself into them. And he says, I give thanks because the eyes of your hearts have been enlightened. The eyes of our hearts, our hearts are enabled to take hope, to see how God loves us and how God has acted and the way that this changes the horizon and some things have to be seen by the heart. And Paul says, I am delight that the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. And you know the greatest thing about this? Paul is still making prayers today. Paul is still making prayers, and he's still making prayers for us. Paul may be, even in this moment, saying, hey, wait, somebody, I heard my name. And he's making prayers for us. And he's like, yeah, that's right, hold on to that. So the first word of encouragement is that the eyes of your hearts have been enlightened. And the second word, then, is that hope is a responsibility. Now, I don't know if you're like me. If you're wired like me, you have trouble enjoying privileges. A a cruise would be torture to me. Put me on a cruise ship, tell me to do nothing but lay in the sun, and not only will I turn into a lobster, but I will be absolutely going nutso inside because I have to be doing something. It would drive me nuts to be on a cruise ship. I have trouble embracing privileges, but I'm good at embracing responsibilities. So if you're wired like I am, the idea that hope is a responsibility is actually helpful. Oh, I have to take hope. I'm supposed to take hope. Hope is a thing I can't let go of. It actually encourages me. I I know, I need help. But in the meantime, it works. Paul says that you can know what is the hope of this calling, or could be read that you can know the hope to which you have been called. You've been called to hope. Hope is a part of embracing with the eyes of our heart the reality of what God has done. 
There's a famous, you've heard me say this before, I have to remind myself of this. There's a famous Church of England bishop who went and was decades in India. And at some point as the world hit one of its modern world shift things like we're in now, as it hit one of its earlier ones, people said to him, they said, Bishop Newbigin, are you an optimist or a pessimist? He said, neither one. He said, but Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. Hope, friends, is a privilege and a responsibility, and we have it. Paul says that you can know the hope to which you have been called, which is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Perfectly fine way to translate that. I like to translate it this way, which I think is also perfectly fine and legit the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Little words can be tricky, right? Prepositions can be tricky. Particularly, there's one of them in Greek that I can't stand. It's, it's epi. Because it's basically, it's basically like their junk fund preposition. You got a gap to fill and you don't know how to put it, throw epi on it. It can mean basically anything. I'm like, well, isn't that helpful? I mean, you've got those that are like in and on and under and above and all that. Great. Besides specific, wonderful. Until they throw epi on it. And then it's conveyed basically anything at all. I don't even know if any of these are epis. But I think this one fits this. the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So on the one hand, our inheritance in Jesus is that we've been gifted new life. And that new life is our hope. And that is gifted to us because Jesus has accomplished it, past tense. It's done. On the other hand, and you get a hint of this in Romans 8 maybe too, depending on how you read that. On the other hand, God has placed his inheritance of Christ in us. For the joy that was before him, Christ went to the cross. What is the joy? Joy is redeeming us whom he loves. That was the whole point of him coming. So in an amazing way, we inherit each other. We inherit each other. We inherit new life, but we inherit being restored into life in God. God inherits us being made into the humanity we were meant to be and being restored into life with him. And that, friends, is a wonderfully mind-boggling thought. You are something God is delighted to inherit. You are loved. You are known. Irenaeus, Irenaeus was an early church father, and Irenaeus did a, did a lot of speaking against the movement that wanted to say that all things that are created are bad and that the soul is the only thing that's good and the soul would eventually escape from all that's created and is bad. This was, this was a big thing in Greek thought. And Irenaeus was one of the early fathers who did the best job of saying no to that. We do well to recover him more. And Irenaeus at one point, famous thing he said, he said, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. The glory of God is the human being fully alive. And, he said, the life of the human being is the vision of God. The life of the human being 
is the vision of God who loves us, who created us, who gave us life, who gifts us new life. And there's a wonderful synergy that happens in that. We inherit God. He inherits us because Jesus rose and is ascended and is seated on the throne in the core life of the Trinity in God. And that's what opens that path up for us. So last two encouraging words. Paul says, this is the incomparable greatness of his power toward us who believe as displayed in the exercise of his immense strength that he worked in Christ. You get, you get how Paul's trying to find words? It's like there aren't words big enough. And Paul's just like, I'm just going to throw whatever words we got at it and just try to find some words that are big enough to say how amazing this is. This, friends, is the God who is for us and with us. And Paul goes on, his the last, the fifth word, the power he exercised in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age that is to come. Paul again, He's just trying to cover every imaginable possibility, every imaginable base, every form of power and authority. He's being as comprehensive as he can find a way to be. And what that means is no matter what, Jesus knows. No matter what, Jesus cares. He's aware, he's acting, he's interceding for us, and it will be sorted. I can't say when. No one can say when. I can't say how. No one can say how. But it will be sorted and made whole. Whatever, whoever is holding you down, full of themselves, taking their insecurities and their slights out on you, holding you under their delusions of grandeur, whatever disease, whatever trouble in the economy, whatever the outrageous price of housing, whatever jobs in the way our society does not pay according to worth, whatever, all that stuff. This is a holy whatever. Paul's like, throw whatever at it. Jesus will overcome it. The darkness you inherited in your wiring, in your own system that's deeper than you can handle, you can't overcome it. You say it's in you. You can't on your own. It's in you. It's your wiring. The self-medicating that first felt like relief and now has you as its slave. A holy whatever. Whatever it is, Jesus will overcome it because he has already and one day he'll make that whole and full. So friends, Ash Wednesday, 40 days before Jesus resurrected, we did the humble hard work of facing our mortality. We tried to walk into reality a little bit and face things we would rather deny. This morning, 40 days, plus a few, hinge on the great hinge of all history. Let the cross swing around. We come to resurrection. We come to new life. And in hope, we will baptize young, new life and celebrate that that life is reunited together with and in God.
and we believe that for ourselves as well. Let's take a few moments and invite you just in your imagination. Don't don't strain with it. Just try to imagine yourself before Jesus on the throne. And he is awesome. And we are bowed down, prostrate, laying out before him, but we're not scared. We're happy. We're delighted. We're in awe and wonder to see that this is what the human was meant to be.